0: A Fabringen, in Yiddish a term meaning a joyous gathering, but it's really so much more. It's insight, it's inspiration, it's the bottom line. Join Rabbi Levi Avtson Tuesdays at 1 p.m. for the Fabringen, only on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 Chai FM, this is Rabbi Levi Avtson from Leeksville Chul, and it is a privilege and an honor to be with you live on this beautiful Tuesday the 23rd of Schwartz, the 18th of February. Hope you're well, and hope that your day so far has been full of blessing, full of opportunity, and you've, that you've been able to see the hand of God in your day. So last week we spoke about a topic that I, I want to stay on, obviously from a different angle. I'm not going to repeat myself, but I want to stay on. I got some feedback from various people. Some complimentary, some critical, some questioning. I think it's worth exploring because it's a, it, this topic is at the heart of so many of the debates that go on in Jewish communities, not only in Jewish communities, in all communities and in businesses. And that is, how much do you cherish the traditions of the past for the sake of the future? I remember sitting with a certain fellow from a shul, not from this country, but that the shul was struggling. And I asked the person, I said, give me a good reason why you think that your shul should continue moving forward. And the answer they gave was, well, the shul's been around for 55 years, and that person's baba used to go to that shul. And I said, that's great that in 1960-something, your mom, your grandmother found resonance in the shul. But why is that an answer for today. And he's like, what do you mean? If if my Baba liked it, then chances are my grandchildren are going to be nostalgic about it and it's important to keep it on. And I think we sometimes overdo the role of nostalgia. We over We think that because something resonated in the past, it's going to resonate in the future. And let me be clear, there are certain things that resonate in the past, future, and present. Torah is eternal. The Torah of yesterday is the Torah of tomorrow. It's the Torah of today. But gefilte fish—it's for yesterday. It might be for today, but chances tells me that for many people, it's not going to be for tomorrow. Because there's a big fundamental difference between tradition, which is something that's adopted throughout—you know—generations based on locality where people live, um, just culture and various nuances of history, and. Some of them last through time, and some of them play their part for X amount of time, and then fall apart. Now, thinking about tradition, as I was driving over here, I remember the story I heard as a child. It's a bit of a joke, but it's it's unfortunately very potent. So the story goes about a certain fellow who shows up in a synagogue. He's never been there before. And it comes time for the Torah reading, and they go to open the ark, and they open the ark from the right. And somebody runs over And he starts pulling the person away that's opening the arc from the right and he starts opening it from the left and they're pulling at each other from both sides. Anyways, this newcomer sees and he's like, he walks over to the rabbi and says, what's the tradition over here? What do you do? The rabbi's quiet. Nothing. Anyways, they're fighting, they're fighting, they're pulling, they're pulling right, left, right. He's like, rabbi, tell me is it right or left? Nothing. Finally, one of the fellows picks up a chair, whacks it in the head of the other fellow, breaks the guy's glasses, and splits the guy's head open. And the rabbi turns to this newcomer and says, now that's our tradition. That's our tradition. We fight. That's our tradition. We can't come to consensus. That's our tradition. Some people will consider that a tradition that, you know what, in this synagogue we fight over these things. It's a tradition, Rabbi, that when the bracha starts, we all gang up on the food and pile into it like we we haven't eaten for three days. That's our tradition. Would you call that a tradition or would you call that just a pathetic um, misbehavior um, that people, if they thought about it, they would actually stop doing it? We often give status to things that don't deserve status and we don't give status to things that deserve it. I remember somebody telling me, he says, Rabbi, my, uh, I bless you. That you never underestimate the things that need to be estimated, and you never overestimate the things that don't need to be so estimated. In other words, most of us have a funny definition of how we estimate something's importance, and some things will underestimate, and some things will overestimate, and will say, you know, this is important. And the other thing which is equally as important, not necessarily. I'll give you an example. In this town, there's, certain, uh, it, there's some beautiful, beautiful traditions that have developed over the years. And some, tra- some traditions, what they evolve into is that they it, it develop extreme importance. So I was talking to a certain fellow a few years ago who was talking to me, you know, Pesach's coming up in two months, and between Pesach and Shavuot's the counting of the Omer, and there's a very beautiful tradition in this town that people don't listen to music. I mean, it's not tradition, it's Jewish law, and people don't watch movies. So this person was asking me, you know, Rabbi, I'm going to a very inappropriate place, and they're going to be showing a movie over there. Uh, inappropriate, I'll just keep it, uh, you know, ambiguous. I don't want to spill too much details and you could use your imagination. But, but can I watch the movie there? Because it's the Omer. And I said, listen, dude, let's get the priority straight. I respect your tradition, but the, the fundamental is that you shouldn't be going to that place in the first place. Now you're asking me, can you watch a movie? Can you listen to music over there? That's a secondary. And we, we all fail. I'm not saying that one society is better or worse than the other. We all, based on, the way we grew up, we give certain importance. I'll have somebody tell me, you know what, Rabbi, Shabbat is really important for Jewish tradition, for, Jew- for Judaism. However, mikvah, a woman going to mikvah once a month, eh, that's a modern shtick. I don't even know where that comes from. Now, I could understand w- why somebody would have that perspective, because for thousands of years, people spoke about mikvah very quietly. Um, intimacy was not something that you spoke about in public, definitely not on the radio, and mikvah was the kind of thing that never got that much airtime as a mitzvah. Let's let's say as Shabbat or kosher. But mikvah is on that level of importance. Going to mikvah and keeping the laws of family purity is one of the fundamentals. Now, obviously, each mitzvah's priority. But when when the sages wanted to say the three most fundamental mitzvahs for a person to accept a religious life, they would say Shabbos, kosher, and mikvah. Now, why mikvah doesn 't have that importance in many people 's eyes is understood as I said it was never spoken about. Nobody spoke about intimacies and uh, intimacy and the laws of intimacy in an open form, or in, very often even parents were uncomfortable to talk about it to their children but just because it wasn 't spoken about doesn 't mean that there's a tradition where mikvah is not important because mikvah is a fundamental mitzvah it 's about bringing children into this world in a home of purity, in a relationship that is pure, where the woman goes to mikvah once a month. So all too often we give importance to certain things over other things, but it's not based on objective fact. It's based on sentiment. Now, sentiment is wonderful as long as it's serving the purpose of the greater good. But when sentiment gets in the way of the greater good, then we have to be very cautious of sentiment. I had somebody tell me, he says, you know, Rabbi, I found deep inspiration in a, in a, in a certain book, a, a Torah book, mysticism. <clears throat> and I come to my Rabbi and my Rabbi says, it's our tradition that we don't read the books. What do you say, Rabbi? So I said, and you feel free to disagree, but I strongly believe this. I said, if you're finding meaning in a Torah book, It happens to be mysticism, and that's what resonates with you. Then how dare somebody else come and say it's not your tradition? If that's what's going to encourage you to grow in your Yiddishkeit, if that's going to encourage you to make your Shabbos more meaningful, if if that's going to encourage you to put on tefillin, then for somebody else, layman or rabbi, to come and tell you it's not our tradition to read the book, I think it's actually disgusting. It's counterproductive. It's where tradition gets in the way of importance. And what does that mean it's not our tradition to read certain books? I hear it all too often in this town where certain people will hold on to a certain hashkafah, a way of perspective. And for the sake of holding onto it, they'll push people away from trying and experimenting and, you know, fielding out. I have a child who goes to a certain high school in this town who asked the question to the teacher, prove me there's a God. This child was struggling and it's a religious school, prove me there's a God. And what's the teacher's response? Our tradition is that we don't ask those questions. You just follow. Now, I don't know where the teacher comes from, and I'm sure their intentions are all pure, but are you kidding me? Do you really think that you're going to keep the kid going and and passionate about their Judaism by telling them, sorry, in our tradition, we don't ask those questions. That's not a tradition. That's just closed-mindedness, pathetic perspective. That's not a tradition. And even if it is a tradition, then it's a tradition worth throwing out. Because it's counterproductive to the future. Tradition only serves purpose today if it helps tomorrow. If it doesn't help tomorrow, then the tradition is useless for today. I'm not talking about mitzvahs. I'm not talking about Torah. I'm not talking about the fundamentals of Judaism. I'm talking about perspectives, nuance, communal traditions, which have some resonance at least 50 years ago. But if today, your child is suffering because you're holding on tradition, which is counterproductive to their development. You have to ask yourself one question. If tradition's getting in the way of the fundamentals, then maybe it's worth going back to the fundamentals and discarding those unnecessary traditions. I know this topic will make some people agree, disagree, but that's why we're here. We're here to have a conversation. You can always reach out. 34519 is our, what's, is our, um, text message number. Feel free to Contact us. Share your thoughts. And now we're going to play a bit of music. This song is called Kein Yevarech. It's a beautiful melody from Mordechai Ben David. And we'll be back just after this. is Rabbi Levi Avtzen, 101.9, Chai FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtzen on 101.9, Chai FM. And we are talking about beautiful traditions and certain traditions that are actually getting in the way. So... Someone one time reached out to the great Torah sage, one of the great Torah sages, about fifty years ago, and he said, "You know, I would really want to start learning um, certain kinds of books of Torah, specifically mysticism, but my tradition is not to." And the response that he got, which is I've seen it many times from various different um, authors, and this specific response was like this. Uh, was it your grandparents tradition to go on holiday in the summer? Was it your grandparents tradition to drive in a car? Was it your grandparents tradition to have a five course meal? That was the response. <clears throat> Traditions. You know, I, I, I cherish my grandparents. I want to talk to you a, a little bit about my grandparents and the value they added to me every single day and how much of their tradition does mean so much to me but at the same time i hold on to the things that will carry me to the future and the other traditions i cherish in my heart but i don't practice for example my grandparents my mother's parents and my father's parents grew up in extre- lived in extreme poverty whether they lived in russia which my mother's parents lived in until 1966 or they lived in Detroit, Michigan, where my parents, my father's parents lived after they left Russia in 1945. Um, they eventually moved in 1950s. They moved to Detroit and lived there for 30, 40 years. And in those circumstances, they both lived in extreme poverty. They both were also extremely large families by any standard. My father's family was one of 15. My mom's family was one of 13. Now, those are traditions I cherish. I cherish the gift of big families. I'm personally the oldest of 12. And if Hashem is so kind to my wife and I, maybe, please, God, will also have a beautiful large family. Now, there were certain things about their lifestyle which was very circumstantial. Obviously, growing up in communist Russia, my mother, pretty much as a child, wasn't exposed to 90% of the foods that I I'm exposed to every single day. One of the big failings of communism was the inability of actually supplying simple basic needs to the people of the country. So my mother recalls how when she arrived in Israel at a young age, after the par- after the family finally got permission from the communist regime to leave and make Aliyah, that she saw citrus fruit. And she had no idea what it was because she's never seen citrus in Moscow. Now, that's a very inspiring story. To appreciate the poverty my grandparents lived with and the way they raised their children. They homeschooled their kids because they didn't want their kids to be affected by the communist ideals. And even when they sent the kids, a few kids to school to just get the government off their back, they would make sure the kids would not write on Shabbos. And the kids would be beaten at times for not writing on Shabbos. They would be threatened. My grandparents would be threatened. Their kids would be taken away. My grandfather wrote a book later on, which was translated in English. It's called Deep in the Russian Night, which describes his life in unbelievably stark colors. Now, I cherish those stories of my grandparents. I really do. My father's father sat in a Russian gulag for three years where he suffered daily abuse and where keeping Shabbos was an absolute nightmare, but nevertheless, he never broke Shabbat. My grandmother buried her parents with her own hands. There's so many stories I could go on and on and on and on and on. And the truth is, I believe many of us can. Each one of us has our unique story to tell. And I cherish those stories and I share those stories with my children. But no. I will do whatever it is within my power. And may Hashem help me that my kids never have to taste the poverty that my parents had to taste. I will do everything I can to give them a quality of life that my grandparents were simply unable to give their kids. And I'm not, and I imagine most people are not, going to sit there saying, well, traditionally we believe in poverty. So therefore, sorry, kids, you're only getting one piece of food per meal. That's not a tradition. That's just circumstantial. It had its time. My grandparents didn't embrace poverty as a way of life. That's all they could live with. Thank God they raised beautiful children who went on and moved on and we carry the tradition. But not only that, my grandfather considered himself a generic Jew. He didn't follow a specific Hashkafa, a certain worldview. He was very generic, my mother's parents. And each of their children... Although all the children, thank God, came out religious while growing up in Russia, he had 13 children all, him and his my grandmother had 13 children while living in, in Moscow, in communist Russia, all those kids eventually moved on, but each one of them looks differently as a Jew. One of them has a big fur strimal, two of them. The other one of them is clean-shaven, proudly orthodox follows a different tradition. One davins this siddur, the other person davins from the other siddur. Now let me ask you a question. Is that right or wrong? After fighting the communist monster for years, my grandfather comes out and his 13 children, each one of them follows their own nuanced way in serving Hashem. Some read Certain books, some read other books. Some per- people follow one rabbi, other people follow another rabbi. Some people see, you know, persp- their perspective is based on one worldview, the other is on another worldview. Is that a betrayal of my grandparents? I would argue a hundred percent not. Why? Because m- my grandparents were cared about the fundamentals. All they wanted was that their children should grow up to be proud, observant Jews. How you observe it, What nuances you bring into it, what traditions you choose to adopt or discard was totally up to them. And I look at my grandparents from both sides, but I'm specifically talking now about my mother's parents who sacrificed so much for many, many years in Russia. And currently, my grandparents have six, seven hundred living descendants. At least, I'll be honest, I can't even count anymore. Thank God. And each one of them is a proud Jew. But we don't all look the same. We don't all use the same siddur. We don't all go to the same rabbi. But we're family. And each one is looking for their truth. And this is a point I want to sit on for a few minutes, and that is your truth. Some people try to sell Judaism that there's one objective Way one objective truth. Now, yes, there's certain things that are truly objectively true. That there is a God. That God gave us the 613 commandments. As a religious Jew, I don't only believe in that. I know it that it happened, and that God is a reality in our lives. Those are objective truths. But most, most, not most, much of how I live my life is true to my own truth. What I learn every day, how I pray. How I'm raising my children is very unique differently than my own siblings, very different than anyone, than pretty much anybody else because I'm me and they're them. Now, I can't sit there saying, you know, objectively, my way of raising my children is the objectively true way. No, it's true to me, and I'm trying to be true to me, and you can be true to you. And that's something that people struggle to get their head around, and that is that there are multiple truths. I'm not talking about in a court of law. In a court of law, there's absolutely one objective truth. We read in this week's Parsha that you can't, like said Ardal, you should not treat the poor person. If there's a court case between a, a poor and a wealthy person, you cannot show any favoritism or any, um, your heart cannot pull in the direction of the poor person. You have to be absolutely clinically justice. So court, the courtroom has one truth. But in life, outside the courtroom, there are multiple truths. And that's why we often try to solve things outside the courtroom through mediation and discussion. There's a lots of truths. Now, yes, there are certain things that are objectively false. You know, you could sit there walking out and saying the sky right now is pink, which it isn't, as, as, at least that's what the way it was a half an hour ago. It wasn't pink, but that's objectively not true. But when I sit there saying I'm living my truth, I connect to God in this way. I feel God's presence in this way. I, c- I follow my parents' Model in this way. That's my truth. You cannot argue that's not true. It's not your truth. And what boggles the mind is how often we try to impose our truth on somebody else. You cannot live my truth. You're not living in me. And I cannot live your truth. All I could do is encourage you to live your truth, and you can encourage me to live my truth, and then we can all live in harmony, even if we're very different, because each of our truths is different. My truth is based on my experience. My truth is based on the way I was taught. My truth is based on my personality. So I feel God's presence in certain ways. I'll give you an example. One person could be very spiritual in nature; they literally feel the energies out there. The other person is very cold cut, and they feel um, religion. They feel connection when they go through a very analytical piece of. Talmud. Now, the person who's enjoying a piece of Talmud will walk over to the other spiritual person who's hugging a tree or simply standing in the forest and crying out to God and say, ah, what kind of God is that? God is found in the books. Really? He is found in the books, but how do you know he's not found in the forest? Just because you don't find him in the forest doesn't mean he's not in the forest. Some of the greatest sages used to go and fo- to search God in the forest, in nature. That's where they felt closer to creation. They felt closer to the creator of heaven and earth. So how can you come and disrespect somebody else's truth? And all too often I'll hear stories about people in my community who walk over to me and say they spoke to a certain leader, a certain rabbi, a certain teacher, a certain this, a certain that. And the person was condescending towards their approach of Judaism. Now, as long as it fits within the basic framework of Judaism, yes, there's things that are in Judaism and certain things that are outside Judaism. Bowing down to idols is obviously outside of Judaism. But if there's room within Judaism for that space, why negate that person's spirituality? Why be patronizing to them? Why knock them down? I had a story a few years ago. I was on this radio, and I was talking about going to the graves of holy people. And after after I finished the show, Humbled by a certain fellow, literally the guy is like screaming at me half a centimeter from my nose. How dare you encourage people to go to graves? It is pure idol worship. So I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you know that millions of Jews go every single year to the grave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? Or to other great sages? Or to the patriarchs? Or to Kei Rachel? No, they're all mistaken. I said, listen, if your tradition is not to go to graves, that's your entitlement. No one's telling you to go. But for you to look at hundreds of thousands, millions of people who do that and to start going based on my tradition, that's idol worship, I think that's disgusting. That's so disrespectful of anybody that looks a little different than you. And unfortunately, that is one tradition that has to break when there's disrespect between group and group. I respect somebody who finds spirituality not by graves, but I also fi- respect somebody who finds spirituality with graves, at graves. I f- respect somebody who finds spirituality in a Talmud, and I, find res- and I respect somebody who finds it in the deep spiritual book, the Tanya But to sit there saying, my tradition, and that's the only way there is. And if you hear somebody, you know, I often hear this in this town. It gets my blood boiling. Your grandparents came from Lithuania, so therefore you shouldn't read those books. Your grandparents came from, you know, from the shtetl, and they didn't do it. You know what? Your grandparents also ate bread. Your grandparents didn't have a car. So what? If that person is finding inspiration by doing X, how dare you negate that? There is so much variety within Judaism. There's so much variety of inspiration. And if somebody finds that they're getting inspired, that their neshama becomes alive, that their soul is vibrant when they read this or they go visit X, to come and negate that is fundamentally disrespectful and it's mistaken. Why? Your truth not necessarily resonates with that person's truth. You don't need it in your life. You find enough spirituality from a Talmud, or you find enough spirituality from reading spiritual books. That doesn't mean it's enough for that person. Maybe that person needs a Talmud or the spiritual book. You don't find inspiration by flying to a certain country to go to a grave of of an ancient fellow. Fine, so don't go. But that person does. It keeps them going for months afterwards. Why negate that? Why negate that? We live in a time where it's so hard to hold on to the fundamentals, where there's so many strong winds, where ideas of secularism and ideas that negate Torah values are rampant. If somebody's finding inspiration to hold on through something that doesn't resonate with you, think very carefully before you negate that, because that's their lifeline. And who are you and who am I to come cut that lifeline? This is 101.9 Chai FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtson on 101.9 Chai FM. 101.9 Chai FM, this is Rabbi Levi Avtson from Linksfield, Shul. SMS us 34519. If you fundamentally agree with what I say or fundamentally disagree with what I say, we welcome your comments. Telegram 061-895-1019. I want to go back to a little... uh, Nugget that I shared earlier, and just develop it a bit more. I was talking to a certain student a a few years ago who came to study in a school that I was teaching, and asked, "Why did you leave the previous school?" And the response of this student was, "Well, when I asked, you know, for proof that God exists, they told me it's the wrong school. We don't ask those questions. It's not our tradition." And everybody started laughing at me. When I asked why we have to keep Shabbos, we said we don't ask those questions. We just keep. Now. I'll be honest. Three hundred years ago in the shtetl, chances are that educational model worked, right? I'd imagine my great 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 grandparents, at some stage, they um, they were asked. They asked their own parents to prove God's existence, and the parents just gave them a slap and said, "Do what you got to do." Now the other kid had the kid had no choices, and he lived in in a small little town, and he eventually followed the traditions, and he passed it over to his own kids the same way. But in the 21st century, in 2020, if your kid asks you, why should I practice Judaism? Why should I hold on to this heritage? And all your answer is, is it's our tradition, quiet. You have a very high high chance of seeing that kid go totally in a different direction because it's an open world. I had a kid... Tell me, I had a meeting with a, a, a student a few years ago, and I asked her, I said, why did you leave the religious um, way of life? And she says, well, every time, you know, I, I, she said, I started, you know, g- breaking a few um, Jewish laws, and every time I would st- st- stub my toe, my mother would say, that's because you turned the light on on Shabbos, and that's because you spoke Lashon Hara and that's because you spoke disrespectfully to your parents and religion just became this tit for tat that eventually i said i don't want to be part of a religion where literally i turn on a light by mistake or on purpose and now suddenly god's whacking me across the face now i i do believe in reward and punishment that's a fundamental of jewish belief but believe me Who made you or me the lawyer of God to start telling people, oh, you know why you're suffering? Mm," Because you don't do X. First of all, it's disrespectful to God. You're literally painting him like just a, sorry for using this expression, a big monster in the sky that's waiting to pummel you for anything you do. That's ridiculous. It's disrespectful. I remember the Lubavitcher Rebbe um, in 1990. There was a whole, there was a certain rabbi who... um, went very public with threats that if the Jews don't repent, then another Holocaust is going to happen. And very few things got the Levavitcher Rebbe's blood boiling um, as hearing such words. And for quite a few weeks, the Rebbe responded to that fellow. And one of the things that he said, which deeply resonated is, you are making a la Hashem. He says, you're desecrating God's name by painting God as a boogie monster in the sky that's waiting to just punish the Jews. It's a chilul Hashem. It's a desecration of God's name. So yes, maybe in your tradition, the way your grandparents raised your parents was tit for tat. God is an angry monster. Now, whether that worked a hundred years ago or not, I'm not convinced it ever did. But let's say it did. It definitely doesn't work today. So why would anybody in their right mind tell an 18 year old kid that the reason you should spend, you should stay proudly Jewish is because otherwise you're going to burn in hell? Otherwise, God's going to punish you. You're going to have a miserable life. Really? Really? Is that a way to keep somebody going? You're first of all making a a mockery of what God is. Second of all, you're using the most unconvincing argument for the person to want to stay religious. Dad, why should I come to Shul? Because grandpa used to go to Shul. That's not an answer. Grandpa went to Shul, I don't know, Grandpa so I don't know, drank beer every day, and Grandpa lived in a, in a small little shack in Yeovil, doesn't mean I have to live there. Like, what does that mean Grandpa did that? Yes, I, I cherish my grandparents, I cherish what they've done, but if I'm going to think that my kids are going to follow the Torah, going to follow the, and have Jewish pride because my grandparents suffered in Russia... I'm mistaken. That might offer them a bit of inspiration, but that's not going to be the impetus. That's not the answer. I have to have an answer that resonates with their world where they're at. And if I can't tell my kid who grew up in the 2000s why there is a reason for him in his world to want to hold on to Shabbos, kosher, tefillin, then I have a very high chance of failure. Because I cannot sit there screaming about a tradition. That's not enough. And, you know, very even Chief Rabbi Sachs, he talks about, he says, for a long time after the Holocaust, people thought that using the Holocaust as a way to encourage Jewish identity is going to be successful. But eventually we realize it doesn't work. You can't sit there saying, you know, millions of people died, so you have to keep on the tradition as a single impetus. Yes, it had a a, a lifespan. It did work for some people. But at this stage, you want to talk to a kid who was born in in 2010, and you're going to just use the Holocaust as a reason for the future, that's not enough. That's not enough. There has to be an answer for the kid's life today. Yes, I lost my great-grandparents. I lost most of my family in the Holocaust. And I mourn for them. And I think of them often. But I cannot come to my kid. And truth is, my parents couldn't even do it to me. Tell me you owe it to your your great-grandfather and great-grandmother who are buried in a mass grave in Ukraine to keep the tradition going. That's not enough. It has to have a resonance today. It has to talk the language of today. So yes, you might walk out of the show saying, "Ah, this rabbi got up over here and all he did for one hour is bash tradition. No, I'm a big traditionalist. I love tradition. I dress in black every Shabbos because that's what my dad did. I wear a a black hat because that's the way I grew up. But believe me, I don't give the same importance to my black hat as I give to kosher. And it happens to me that this custom resonates with me. This tradition resonates with me. And as far as I know, it's not getting in the way of my kids' Judaism. It's not getting in the way of my Judaism. So why not? I'm holding on to it. I think it's lovely. I still enjoy eating a filter fish. I do. I really do. And I I enjoy chicken soup as well, especially knedlach. But if you think that I could put on the same pedestal knedl and tefillin, really? The knedl is nice. I grew up with it. It's familiar. I don't know if my kids are going to eat knedlach in 50 years. And honestly, I don't care. I do care that they'll still feel a connection to God. I pray every day that they'll feel something when they put on tefillin, when they light the Shabbos candles. I pray that they'll enjoy kosher food but what food they eat I couldn't care less if they don't like filter fish Zalzine, let it be if filter fish has to die out of Judaism in the next 20 years that will not be the biggest tragedy but if intermarriage rates go up which unfortunately they are if if a Jewish observance falls away which unfortunately it is that's a tragedy I have two comments that just came in, one from Ronnie Hershowitz, actually both from Ronnie, saying, loving the show, you're very engaging and compelling. Judaism's default is questioning. Not so. That's our teacher and rabbi's best opportunity to impart their knowledge, 100%. And when you're afraid of questions, you're actually stifling the growth of the questioner. Ronnie, thank you so much for your comments. This is 101.9 High FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avzon on 101.9 High FM. Judaism's alive. Judaism is vibrant. Judaism has so much to offer. And to each person listening to the show, I would say, go. Dig into your tradition. And I mean tradition as in your heritage. Dig into your story. There's so much inspiration, not just for your grandparents, not just for times of darkness, but for times of light. Not just at moments of death and grief, but at moments of celebration and connection. Judaism has value to add in your dining room, in your bedroom in the school classroom in your heart, in your mind in every part of who you are there's so much value to add question engage open your mind a few years ago I I, in my shul I said I want to open a movement, I never did, it's called Detox from things you learned in Hebrew school. Because some things we learned in Hebrew school were absolutely true. And some things we learned from Hebrew school were t- absolutely destructive. Maybe the teacher didn't know what they were doing, or they just thought that that's the way to teach. But often you'll sit across a person and say like a thing like, you know, God's not a vindictive monster. And they'll be, really? And we, yeah, yeah, really. Hmm. And God loves you no matter what you do. There's unconditional love. Really? I thought Judaism was all about conditional love. No, actually it's not. It's actually about unconditional love. And God actually wants to have a relationship with you. Really? I thought God just tells us what to do as a king, but he doesn't care what we do. He's totally uninvolved. Like, those are the things we got to detox from, and so much more. There is so much. Whether you could go to a shi or whether you could read yourself, whether you could go on the internet, to one of those websites, whether you could just engage in conversation with somebody. Explore. And yes, traditionally... People didn't go find Judaism on the Internet. till the 1990s, there was no such a thing. But that's one tradition, as many others, that you could throw away. You could actually find incredible insights on the Internet. Traditionally, we didn't go to Shigerim on podcasts. But in today's day and age, you download Podbean or any other podcast app. And you know what? You could learn all day. The, ever since I download these apps, I actually love driving more than I ever did because I could get serious amount of learning done. While I'm in the car, all I do is just press play on a, a certain podcast that resonates with me. Fantastic. In any language you want. For free. Come on, guys. And please don't tell me that's your tradition not to learn Torah on, on a phone. Because that's not a tradition. What, what, what is that anyway? would love to hear your thoughts. You could always send messages. I'll see it next week. This is 101.9 High FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Aftson from Linksfield Shul. It's been a privilege and an honor to sit with you. We will finish off with a piece of music, which is called Ad Una, here on 101.9 High FM. Have a great week. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Chai FM. Cheers.